last time we talked, I think you and I, after we've had some time to reflect on it, we realized we might have dumped too hard on <laughs> randomized controlled trials. Yes. And so what we wanted to kind of come back and talk about was uh, making those clinical decisions, understanding the limitations of ran randomized controlled trials, but then also applying what we can know and mixing that with the uh, patient preference and then our clinical experience. Right. So where do we go wrong in dumping on randomized controlled trials too, too much? Um, I would say uh, it's good to, uh, we'll go back to the, the three pillars, right? The three pillars, the three conjoining circles that we talked about the first time is um, those are your patient experiences, right? Your, the randomized controlled trial, the RCT, and then the uh, clinical hunch, right? And we know, you know, we can't always uh, lead or make decisions based purely on a, a patient's clinical or a patient's experience, a patient's preference, right? Uh, and we talked last time about the randomized controlled trial, which is extremely helpful, right? When we think about, we've all seen that pyramid of evidence where that's, you know, at the top to give us really good, good evidence. And then uh, we kind of picked apart certain randomized controlled trials and how they don't uh, maybe fit our population perfectly. Um, but we also have to realize that uh, our hunches as well, the reason we have those, the reason we really have and need RCTs is because of our, our clinical experience and hunches, are off, they often lead us astray as well. So um, we definitely build that, that builds up over time, and we uh, can improve that through, through learning, through experiencing, through mentorship and all those things. But um, frankly, we're just, there are specific biases that's come into account. Um, regression to the mean, though, those are kind of the Talk two. Talk about that for a little bit, because I think that's a term that, that most people have probably forgotten. Yeah, good, good question. I, uh, regression to the mean is basically a phrase that describes the natural history of an illness. So you think about any illness, whether it's dry eye glaucoma or, or anything more generally, uh, more systemically, everything has a peak, usually chronic illness, uh, and acute, they, it has a peak and it has a trough, right? So things tend to go up and down uh, just over the natural uh, course of the, of the condition. And when we see a patient for that condition, it is often at the peak. So it's usually in an acute phase. So a uh, great example, dry eye, they tend to come in you know, right at that, that peak moment, or a red eye or an infection, they tend to come in at a peak moment. Um, sometimes we, we uh, will diagnose glaucoma or we'll see a patient and we hit them at a peak moment. And that's, that's why we, you know, check pressures at different times of the day and uh, at different points in time to kind of see that variation. But so when we do see patients at that peak moment, uh, we can get led astray, we can get biased, if we give them a, a prescription for something and they get better, then we just assume our assumption is, well, I made the right decision, right? I uh, uh, treated them with whatever it was that, uh, that helped them and now they're better. Well, it's really difficult to know, are they better? You, there's just really no way of knowing that. Uh, knowing well, that's what the randomized control trial helps us understand. Exactly, right. except for when we you know, take 500 people and we split them in half and we uh, treat one, you know, 250 of them this way, treat the other 250 with a placebo and then watch them. And then the difference between the two, that's whether the treatment worked or not, you know? So, 
to put it in terms of kind of, you know, going back to some of our topics uh, previously, when you look at the uh, some of the things that are going on in the pandemic right now, that's where some of those, um, some of the medications early on that were controversial, we can get into that, but they uh, were very controversial, like um, um, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. You know, those, yeah. those things, uh, they were working well for a lot of early patients. Like they were Quote potentially, early, yep. yeah, potentially working well. Um, but that's what a lot of uh, other people, other practitioners were saying at the moment. It's like, well, we can't really decide unless we do an RCT on that. We don't know if that's just, hey, they got COVID and they got better uh, because that's a natural history of the, of the condition, or do they get better because they had this treatment? Why do you think that we applied that that um, level of scrutiny collectively to a medication like hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, but we didn't apply it to things like masking and six feet of social distancing and shutting things down. Why, why, why the difference? Hello and welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation, another follow-up conversation with Dr. Kyle Cludy about the about how to navigate uncertainty and also apply, apply our clinical hunches with patients' preferences. And we kind of delved into more of that process. It was a lot of fun. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. I want to talk about the My Day Multifocal for a second. It's just coming out and we had the opportunity to do a preclinical trial with this lens this last summer. And there were a couple of things that I thought were really helpful. The first one is that it is different than a lot of the multifocals that we've used before in our practices where patients, especially early emerging presbyopes, really managed the, it didn't cause a lot of additional uh, distance blur for them. And the other thing that was really helpful was because we've never been involved in a clinical trial before was to understand uh, the sort of questions that we might ask our patients. And we ask a pa our patients a lot of questions about their patient about their satisfaction with a contact lens, but what we weren't doing was actually having them score that themselves. So one of the parts of this that was really interesting to me was asking patients on a scale of one to 10, how they would score their vision, how they would score their comfort in their current lenses, and then how they would do the same on their uh, new lenses. And it showed me a lot of times where patients would say they were happy, might rate their vision as a six or a seven. And, um, and then it also reframed their thinking about their current satisfaction in their lenses and allowed me to open up the door to offering other solutions. So if you haven't tried something like that in your clinical practice, I would encourage you to. And I would also encourage you to try the MyDay Multifocal for your patients. That is a great question. <laughs> um, honestly, like when you look back, I think that it all goes back to uh, my, my observation, so I'll say my hunch here, <laughs> is when you look back to February of 2020, right, when the first information started to come out about uh, SARS-CoV-2, right, it wasn't really in the States as far as we knew um, at that point. There was, uh, and you look from February to basically April, from the leadership, there was not a great ability to communicate uncertainty. There, um, like when I think about uh, my position as, uh, as an eye doctor, as talking to patients about their risk, and this is exactly what we're, we'll get to in a little bit, is that 
the way that you garner trust, the way that you uh, establish rapport with that person and they trust you is that you communicate uh, what you know and what you don't know. Uh, and I, and I, honestly, I just don't think that that was done very well at all. And what it did is it, um, it polarized. Like we're, we're already kind of in a, we're not kind of, we're in a very polarized situation right now politically anyhow. Um, but then when you have leadership that is um, polarized as well, they're uh, not communicating certainty very well about, you know, they're essentially mandating certain things that maybe not have the as good of evidence as they'd like it to be, but they're not saying that those types of things are withholding that. Um, that just doesn't garner trust, you know. Um, I mean, you can't, no matter what side you're on, left or right, you can't look back, in my opinion, you can't look back at the last uh, almost two years and think that it's gone well. <laughs> like, you know, just look at the numbers, 750,000 plus uh, deaths, right? Um, you look at that and you just have to say, there's a, there's a failure there, yeah. right? Uh, so, and we know as practice owners, as, as business owners, like when there's a problem, it starts at the top. 99% of the time, you know, like you can, you can blame people for not listening to you. You can blame people for, uh, just not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And, um, maybe there's some bad eggs here and there, but majority of the time, like if you have 50% of the people that do not listen to you whatsoever and don't trust you, and then 50% of the people that do like that, that kind of falls on the leader that yeah. falls on their ability to communicate well. So in my opinion, that's where we really, we, we just have not been able to uh, communicate from the get-go the amount of uncertainty that's existed. And I think if we'd have done that a different way uh, and not held back, what is the real risk here? Like put it in terms of not, not percentages like we talked about last time, but put it in terms of, hey, one out of 100 or one out of 10, things that you and I and everybody can see and think, okay, I get that. Like yeah. I can feel that. I, uh, you know, there's a there's kind of a quick understanding. Whereas a percentage improvement, nobody really like that's really hard to understand. Right. Yeah. And and I think you know there are things that. Um, so if we're going to apply this to, okay, um, moving forward when you have uncertainty in clinical practice and you believe in the hunches that you have. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's really hard to, so we want to point to a randomized controlled trial, but one randomized controlled trial can't tell us how to manage all dry eye patients. Right. And it can't tell us how to even probably manage all dry eye patients with a steroid because, you know, that randomized controlled trial might only last for two weeks or 30 days or, you know, what if we need to use it longer or, you know, so, um, so how do you then have the confidence to share what you're seeing with your patient mm. so that they understand that, that you've weighed the evidence well, you've weighed your clinical experience well, and you've, and I think part of the bringing them into the decision allows them to understand or at least feel that you've weighed their component well. But how do you communicate that uncertainty by saying, you know, this is what the evidence tells us, this is what we think, this is what I think is best for you to convey that confidence without being like, well, this might work or that might work or try this or try that. Yeah, confidence is the is the best word there. How do you how do you get confidence? It really starts. I think um, uh, break it down to three things that I've kind of packaged in my mind. Of okay, this is this is the process that I would that I would consider every single time. And number one really is like 
you you got to have your own confidence in the treatment. So uh, it's more personal leadership. This is like before you get to the patient, before you have the patient in your chair. You the the three things I would go to is assess. Right, you got to assess the evidence yourself. Okay, you need to articulate uncertainty, and then you need to to document. If you can do those things, really, those three things really well, I think you're going to be really successful and garner that trust. You're going to have you're going to have the confidence to move forward with a patient because they're going to trust you. You're going to trust that that process, and they're going to trust you. So that first one, uh, like I said, it's kind of like it's an everyday grind. It's an everyday consistent practice that uh, if you want to continue to improve as a doctor, you got to do it. And that's really just to assess the trials yourself. So don't take, okay, our, our reps are great, right? The industry vendors, everybody's great. They give us a lot of information, but go to the study yourself and read it. Um, don't be intimidated by it. Like there's a lot, you know, I feel like we tend to make things way too, uh, we want to be like statisticians. We don't have to do that. You know, you don't have to know really like thoroughly understand P values and you don't have to under, just like what we talked about last time is look at the study, like assess the study yourself. So read through it and does this apply? So it's compare, it's understand the chances and then find some consistency. So it's, does this study compare to, like we talked about last time, does it compare to my patient base? Uh, what's the absolute risk reduction and the number needed to treat? And just understand those things, calculate that every, every time. Um, so it's looking at the studies. It's uh, also, if you, if you want to understand more what other clinicians are doing as well, like you, you're not only looking at the RCTs, but also clinical hunches, um, read review articles, read, uh, two of my favorite journal are journals, hands down review of ophthalmology and current opinion in ophthalmology. Uh, those are great places just to get like, Hey, major review on macular degeneration. And you're going to get every, like every study. They're just, you know, it's somebody doing the work for you and you're going to read that and you're going to see the combination of clinical opinion and the RCT. So that's a great, that's a great thing to look at. Another awesome resource uh, or resources are uh, clinical practice guidelines that uh, AOA puts out or the Academy of uh, Ophthalmology puts out uh, preferred practice patterns. Yep. So they've, I mean, you, if you haven't gone there, it's a great place to, to go to start because, I mean, they've have, you know, uh, preferred practice patterns on uh, high, or, uh, open angle glaucoma suspect on ocular hypertension, on uh, primary open angle glaucoma, on dry eye, on uh, macular disease, you know, macular holes, and or peripheral retina. So the, one of my favorite uh, documents is reading their preferred practice patterns on peripheral retina, you know. I mean, that's, that sounds silly, but um, it, it's great information. You know, it's the reason why I've set up my protocol. If somebody has flashes and floaters, uh, I'm going to have them. Obviously, you're going to see them right away. If I don't see any retinal abnormality, what that protocol says is you need to have them back in a month, yep. right? Because if somebody's in your chair with flashes and floaters, in that moment, there's about a 15% chance that they've got something, okay? Uh, if, 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 if you find nothing, then there's about one to 2% chance that they may still have something happen in the next month, four to six weeks. So you have them back in four to six weeks, you know? Uh, so it's just a great place to go for those things. Um, well, it's nice because, you know, there, 
in your vernacular, the, the part that you're talking about with, with talking to patients is um, when you can say either, okay, the, this study tells me this and it's going to apply. But if you can't say that, you can say based on our clinical practice guidelines, yes. and as long as you're saying it accurately, right. we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And the other part that I think is interesting to bring into this is the idea of billing. And I, mm. I often, as you know, I often consult with with different companies and different practices, uh, as well as just talk about billing and coding. And one of the, the most common questions I get is, well, Chris, when am I going to have to worry about an audit? And that usually comes when we're talking about managing a patient with glaucoma and having to run three or four fields in, in the course of a year for one individual patient. And they, they think that that is going to trigger somehow this massive audit. And by being mm -hmm. audited, you're going to be like, everything is going to get like, everything's going to collapse in you. And so there's this fear of, well, okay, I'm worried about that. But, but like, if you're following the clinical practice guidelines, and as you point, rightly point out, if you have a patient, I, 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 it's just off the top of my head, but if you have a patient that has severe glaucoma, it's not unusual to want to run a field three to four times a Correct. year on that patient. In fact, that's what our clinical practice guidelines would suggest. It's also not unusual. Our clinical practice guidelines and preferred practice patterns would tell us that within the two, first two years of diagnosis, we want to have six fields, Correct. up to six fields. And That blows and so, your mind, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, it? <laughs> it blows your mind. And so, so like, um, so okay, let's say that triggers an audit. Well, it probably shouldn't be every single patient that has a diagnosis right. of mild, you know, mild or low risk glaucoma suspect that's getting six fields in two years. But you might have a patient that is that, mm -hmm. right? You might have a, a patient that is that. And so understanding those clinical practice guidelines not only allow you to know how to communicate to your patient and how you should follow up with those patients, but it also should give you confidence in what you're doing and how you're how you're billing for something. Right. And one of the reasons, I mean, just to get into the weeds a little bit on that, uh, the, this is another, uh, practice guideline that I've been, th that I've read through. And, uh, most people might think that's kind of nerdy, but, uh, is the European glaucoma society mm -hmm. also has, mm -hmm. like, it's a, an amazing document. It's about 60, 70 pages or I forget, or maybe more. Uh, and it just like, it's like taking glaucoma 101 again, going through there. And, uh, one of the re primary reasons that they cite for performing that that uh, visual field six times in the first two years is because there was a study that showed, um, or there's there's at least evidence, I should say, that 10% of new glaucoma patients are rapid, rapid progressors. progressors yeah. So, uh, so if one out of 10, I mean, and that's a conversation you have with the patient, right? Is like, hey, you know what? We just diagnosed you with glaucoma. There's evidence that about one in 10 patients. Uh, do rapidly progress in that first two years. So we, we've got to have you back, and this is my plan for you for the next two years. So you're going to get really used to this, this clicker test. I know you don't enjoy that. It's not very much fun, um, but that's what, that's what the guidelines show us. That's what the evidence shows us. Uh, so that's the decision we're going to make because the last thing we want is to, for you to come back in, you know, just to set up the six-month return, I'm going to see you maybe two or three times the next two years, and all of a sudden, two years from now, you've, you know, you've gone from a mild to, to severe. Yeah. You know, that's what we don't want whatsoever. Um, and that's not only good patient care, but that's also reducing your liability. Right. Right. And, and part of that reduction of liability, and you mentioned this before, and I want to come back to it, is the documentation component. Mm. So, you know, I think the other part of uncertainty is, well, how much should I put in my chart? I need to be, 
Like, is it okay for me to put that I'm unsure about the the state of this patient's condition? Yeah. And if I am unsure, do I need to have somebody else give me a second opinion? Right. Yeah, that's a I think that documentation is the probably like the most important besides understanding and assessing and and obviously you got to communicate that, but documentation basically seals it all together. It seals the deal for you uh, because you're going in a chart and it's essentially, if, you, if you're documenting this, that means that you do know the studies, that you have articulated it, but basically you're just saying, uh, say that glaucoma patient, you are saying that, um, for example, for uh, a ocular hypertension patient, I'm going to say uh, patient educated on OATS, trials, uh, patient perceived understanding and educated on risk of treatment versus no treatment. I'm going to put that on every single time, every single chart that I'm going to do that for patients. Uh, and then you, like I said, you want something in there where it actually says that patient seemed to understand what you were saying, uh, so that you know, and they know that like, Hey, this is, this was communicated well, this was articulated well. Um, and you can even put in there, like you said, uh, for example, for the oats, I always tell patients, we put it in that kind of number needed to treat mindset or that one out of whatever mindset. And that's, Hey, if we treat you, uh, you have about a one in, you know, uh, what is it? One in 10 chance of getting glaucoma in five years. If I don't treat you, you have about a one in 20 chance of getting glaucoma in five years. That's really what the oats uh, shows us as long as you fit in that, that category, yeah, right? You are just a, across the board, average right. oats patient, not right. thin corneas, exactly. or high, you know, higher IOPs. Right. Um, so document that, right? So, um, and then after that, then patient prefers this patient direct, you know, period patient directed to this. And then you can then list out what you're going to do, you know, for the next three to six months in your, in your plan. Uh, and that's, I mean, there's so many benefits to that beyond liability, beyond, patient education. I mean, it's a great just having that full documentation so that when you come back, you have an idea of what you did talk about, then you can reinforce that same topic. You're probably going to have the same exact discussion again, because a patient, you know, that's going to go over their head. Um, but one point that I think is really important when we, when we educate, so when we articulate, kind of going back to um, when we're articulating these things to the patient, part of um, part of articulating uncertainty to patients, like we, we tend to be in a real marketing driven world right now. And marketing tells us that we have to simplify, simplify, simplify everything. I don't think I, I could be wrong, but I personally don't think that's how we should be. Um, we should be educating our patients. Like, uh, that's, that's a tool to help you buy something, hmm. right? When you simplify something, it's like making something black and white. It's like, you know, you're either going to have this life or this life if you buy our product, right? <laughs> That's marketing. That's not really medicine. Hmm. Um, me medicine is about uh, really art articulating well the complexity. It's okay. And I think it's ideal. Relate this back to what we, did, what we talked about previously about COVID, our COVID response. I think it's okay and really wise to unpack the complexity of it, right? Because it puts the patient in a position where it's like, okay, I see where they're coming from here. I trust them that this isn't just like, he knows exactly what we're going to do. And it's just going to, things are going to be solved. And then I'm going to move on in my life. You know, 
think about this in the terms of dry eye. It's like, yes, uh, 85% of dry eye patients, it's meibomian gland dysfunction is the underlying reason. And 15%, it's, you know, decrease or aqueous deficient. But is that really true? I mean, that's kind of what dues one yeah. lettuce. But then clinically, like, it's so much more of a mix than that, right? Yeah. Um, we, we know that when we're, when a lot of us that treat a lot of dry eye, it's way more complex than that. And I honestly say that to every patient. It's like, this is kind of how we tend to categorize it, but it's like, it's hard. It's like, this is a chronic condition and it waxes and wanes. And these are the things that we kind of know, but, um, so some of the, these are things that we have good evidence for, um, but communicate that complexity. I think patients deserve that yeah. and they respect that. Well, and I think it, it comes full circle, right? You, you've understood the evidence. You've then applied your clinical hunches to, to the evidence that you have and that individual patient's situation and preferences. And then by articulating it, you're gaining trust. You're, mm -hmm. you're, you're building trust to that patient when they need to potentially wonder about something or when, when you can't fix something right away or something isn't getting better as you would want it to get better or the patient might want it to get better. And then you've documented that. I mean, at least the patient has, I mean, it's, it prevents all of those things are, are going to prevent all the stuff that you don't want to have happen. Right. Losing patients, uh, you know, having bad outcomes, right. uh, having, um, having malpractice lawsuits yeah. brought against you, right? Even if, you know, if you put in your chart the, all of the things you're talking about, and let's say that patient did in fact have glaucoma and did in fact progress in their glaucoma, it, on the one hand, it'd be really hard for them. I mean, if you're monitoring them closely, it's probably not going to be a rapid progression. And, um, and so if you're following our clinical practice guidelines mm -hmm. and you're following what the evidence tells us we should do, and we're not worried about, you know, getting audited because somebody might, you know, come down and look at our charts, mm -hmm. then that patient's going to come back in six to 12 months, right? Let's say right. they're, let's, if, if they're over 22, they're probably going to come back in six months. If you look at our clinical practice guidelines, maybe, maybe you've, you've established that they're stable over years and you can push it out a little further. But, mm -hmm. but the point is, is that a patient with a pressure of 22 at almost any age is not going to lose significant vision Correct. from glaucoma in a year. Right. Uh, are, and so, so if you've done all those things, you're going to follow that patient and, and they're likely not going to get worse. And then you've built in trust with the patient. So they're going to come back. And even if they don't come back, they're going to, they're not going to want to go after you from a malpractice standpoint because they're going to have, they're going to remember, oh yeah, yeah, maybe I went, I didn't went someplace else because I got a better deal or I went online because I, you know, I knew that I, Dr. Cludy talked to me about other stuff. I knew he was worried about this. I should have known better. And then even if it gets to that point, your chart has has described all the thought that you've gone through and and uh, put into this individual case. And I like I also think that you know as we get into busier clinical situations, it can be easier to not chart as well. Mm -hmm. But that only punishes you later, right? Because if if you chart well, as you said, you know I can look at my charts now and look at what my plan was from six months ago, three months ago, a year ago, and I can know exactly what I was thinking and exactly what I wanted to do. And the only difference is on that specific visit is if there's something new that has been brought to the table that I have to consider. Otherwise, it's, it's okay, this is what my protocol was. This is what I was thinking about this. Is there anything different about that? No? Okay, this is what we're going to do. Right. Right. 
So that that simple, it actually simplifies your life in a busy practice. It really does. And it, that is the common pushback. It's like, okay, I got to, I have to document all of that. And it is, <clears throat> it is, um, it is tedious at first uh, to really, like, if you aren't documenting like that, to really get into it and do it. But once you, you're exactly right. Once you start doing that on a consistent basis, it really does uh, pay off big time in the long run. Um, spending that extra, you know, 60 seconds really in each chart at the end, summarizing in a story. Because really that's like, I don't know a lot about audits. That's not my area of expertise. But from what I have heard, like, I mean, these aren't, these people that are auditing charts, they're not medical experts, right? So if you can write in rarely, a story, rarely, rarely, but rarely. so if you can tell a story, right? Like, you know, that, that is marketing in a sense, you know, uh, we're all very in tune to stories. And when you have a good story, uh, that seems like it's pretty methodical and well thought out, then, I mean, that's going to be going to be really, really helpful. Uh, in those situations, I would think at least. Um, but yeah, I, th I think it really, uh, it, uh, whatever you are, the amount of time you're spending on the back end, that extra 60 to 90 seconds, like you said, you are saving on the front end the next time you see that patient. Because uh, you can train your staff just to go in and oh, yeah. I, just, I just say, hey, you need to click on these tabs and go right to my uh, my summary right there, and you're going to get everything you need to know yeah. about how we're handling uh, this patient, all the tests we're going to do next time. You know, so that's that's what they do is they just my technicians they come in and they look at that, they read that, and they know exactly what we're going to do. Yeah, and they learn something about about the patient and our decision making. Uh, another word on that too is what I found with documentation. So say there's a situation where you don't know what the we're, 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 all, we're always talking about, we, we have been talking more about, we know what the diagnosis is. And now we're just trying to figure out what treatment, right? Right. Well, when you don't know the diagnosis, that's a whole different thing. Document that, right? Well, yeah, we did. Yeah, so we didn't get into that. So to talk about that, if, if because um, that's the other part is that, okay, well, we've got ocular hypertension versus glaucoma, but that's kind of similar, right? We know how we can manage that uncertainty. Yep. But I don't want to put in uncertainty when I see some patients that have corneal infiltrates, but I don't know, maybe this is herpetic or mm -hmm. maybe it is um, thigusins or I, I don't know. How do I? Yeah. So what do I do? So, I, so the natural reaction is to just get rid of them. Yeah. Let somebody else take a look at them and handle right. them. Right. Um, it's to... It's to walk... walk. I, I, I walk it through with a patient just just like I was talking about before is I, I just out loud. And a lot of times I come to my conclusion by talking it through to the patient. I don't know if you do that as well, but sometimes it just, well, it, you, you it, can understand their preferences. Yeah, you sometimes. start to feel like what, uh, if they're worried mm -hmm. about it, you start to feel at their level anxiety. And if they're really anxious and you have no idea, then maybe you need to have a second opinion. Right. Um, but uh, for the most part, it's just walk through, Hey, it could be this or this or this, you know, you've got uh, these, you know, sometimes a lot of times corneal issues, I mean, they're not textbook, you know, the right. cornea is difficult. That's why we have specific people that are specialized in that. Right. Um, and we should be too optometrists. I mean, that should be our bread and butter as well. Um, but it's to walk through, uh, each of the options and 
to articulate the complexity of that, just to say, hey, we usually, you know, for, uh, for your example there, well, I would articulate it could be a virus, okay? And, but what viruses, the textbook view of a virus, a textbook example of a virus is to have these little, we call them dendrites, but I'm not really seeing that. But sometimes when it's really early on, they're not quite formed yet. The dendrites aren't quite formed. It's more punctate. It's more kind of like uh, little, little, you know, spots. Uh, so that, and that's kind of what I'm seeing today. Or there's this other thing that we kind of think is viral, um, but, and it, but it doesn't really, it usually happens in kind of a white and quiet eye. And that's, that's similar to what you have. So I, I mean, I just walk them through that yeah. whole thought process. Uh, and it just, it lets them in on the complexity. Um, and then I document that. Yeah. I usually say patient educated on uh, potential differential diagnosis. And then I put a colon and I just list them. This versus this versus this versus this. And, and then I just say, based upon the discussion, we're going to initiate topical steroids, right. you know, and we're going to, we're going to initiate These findings make me more, more, um, make it more likely that this is the d diagnosis, yep. but we're going to be aware of these other diagnoses P precisely. And yep. that's how, and so we're going to watch closely for resolution or progression. Yep. And then I would say, you know, we're going to return, have the patient, patient understands uh, the risk, and we're going to return the have the patient return to office in one to two days, or sooner. Patient was educated that if anything changes, list the things that you told them that if these specific things change, then they're going to call you. You know, you can even a lot of times I'll just say, Dr. Cludy gave them uh, gave patient direct number or mm -hmm. mobile phone number uh, to call him with any changes after hours, and so just like okay, just you're just presenting the case that you're here for the patient, you're not doing something um, careless, right? right? Uh, you're spending time and thinking through, and, and that's the art of it. Well, right? and even if you misthought something, like like the, the reality is, is that malpractice doesn't mean you can't make mistakes. It right. just means it, it just means it can't be, like patients can't be like catastrophically harmed by those mistakes or even significantly harmed. I mean, I'm not a malpractice expert, but the reality is, is that like, there's very few, um, very few times where if you're listing all those things out, let's say there was a whole other differential that you weren't even considering. I don't know what it would be, but, but maybe there was yeah. something, right? And some, some, you know, most experts that would come in and look at that case would probably say, you know, I don't know that I could, I could fault him for what the way he right. was thinking because I understand the logic that he's presenting, right? right. Very few doctors, there are probably doctors out there, but there's very few doctors that uh, won't give clinicians the benefit of the doubt, right. especially if there's if they're well articulated in their documentation, right? And they're well reasoned. Like maybe there was a zebra there that you're not considering that right. is going to wind up harming that patient. Again, I don't know what it would be, but what the point is is even if you miss that zebra, one, you're having the patient back soon. Two, uh, you're you're articulating the things that are going through your head and the com complexity that's going through your head and why it's reasonable for you to think that this is the, the, the thing that you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And so then, then where, you know, and then every time you have that patient back and you're monitoring that patient, you're, you're wondering, okay, well, is this still reasonable? It is okay. Cause yep. it's, it's getting better just as we expected to get better as opposed to now it's not getting better. And I don't know what, what the other thing that I'm missing is. That makes sense, right? right. When you can't figure out w what you know and what you don't know, that's where you have to 
to think, okay, what am, what am I missing? Who do I need to bring in to this case to, to help me clarify right. that? Right. Yeah, that's a great point. Is like, yeah, if you do have... You articulated a patient, sorry, but th- this might be, you know, when we were running last time, you articulated a patient that um, had histo. Uh, prior histo oh, yeah. spots. Yeah. So go ahead. You were going to say something, and then I'll, you. No, can, that's good. I'll, t- I'll good talk about to... that. Yeah. So in, interesting case. I have a uh, patient. He's he's about he's our age. He's uh, late uh, early late thirties, early forties, and he's had um, plaque psoriasis for fifteen years, and he has not treated it whatsoever, just because he's in uh, because it can cause issues with sterility. Um, some of the heavy treatments for, it, and he would need some pretty heavy treatments. So. Um, and he had, when he was, he's an attorney and when he was in law school, uh, he had a a histoplasmosis infection and, um, so his right eye, when you look at it, he's got the classic histo spots, but he's got parapapillary atrophy. That's significant to the, to the point where it took out about 40% of the macula. Hmm. Okay. So when you look at those photos, you're like, and he's 2020. Okay. Where's contact lenses? 2020. Uh, so seen really well, but man, any more, and he would be dramatically losing vision in that, in his right eye. And so he, we've been talking about it for several years. He's been, uh, in terms of him trying to initiate treatment for his, his plaque psoriasis. And, and I told him every time, you know, those are immune modulators. Okay. And theoretically, if you go on something like that, uh, prior infections or, you know, latent infections, uh, could resurface. I mean, it's theoretically, I don't know how I never, you know, when I told him that I was just like, this is all theory. I've no like data, how many of this times this happens. I've no study or anything like that, but we just have to be mindful of that. So when you do decide and see a rheumatologist, you do decide to do that. Uh, you need to let me know. And then we need to figure out a plan. And so he did, it was a couple of weeks ago, he texted me and, uh, he said, Hey, we're going to start this medication. I just want to make sure it's okay. And so <clears throat> I, um, excuse me. I, uh, uh, obviously texted him back and we talked about it a little bit, but it was one of those where I emailed, um, our, uh, one of the local retinal specialists here and we have a pretty good, uh, rapport or uh, relationship where he's, I just said, Hey, this is the case. Just like I just presented it. Here's the photo. And have you had any cases where toxo or not toxo histo, um, reactivates. And because I don't, I mean, I've seen maybe, I, you know, less than 10. Yeah. In, in our, in our group. demographic, yeah. in our area right now, we're so, just not and he said, I've seen, he said, I've seen one patient, I have one patient that has had a histo reactivation and none of them is because of this. So, and he said the same thing is like, is it possible? Yes. Theoretically possible. Is, is it really rare? Yes. Uh, but this is the plan I would make is we would do this. And so, um, so I said, okay, great. That's excellent information. That's kind of what I was feeling as well. So we made a plan, uh, with this patient. Okay. Once you start that in about six weeks, we're gonna have you come in. Uh, we're going to do an OCT and, uh, give you an Amsler grid. You're going to look at that at home. And then about every two to three months for the next year of treatment that you're going to be on, uh, we're going to have you back in. And just do an OCT just to be sure that we're not losing anything. There's no reactivation or anything. So, I mean, that's like, there's no study as far as, you know, that's totally just like, hey, this is our hunch. We should probably watch it this way. We have these tools to evaluate uh, this uh, this tissue and it's all based upon theory, but 
It's all documented, right? We talked about it. The patient prefers this. The patient well, doesn't want to lose their vision. Yeah, and you can also put in there, look, you know, discuss the case with Dr. So-and-so, yep. and he agrees with the plan that we laid out. I mean, you're not trying to throw him under the bus. What you're saying is like you've added complexity to your right. thought process. Oh, right. by the way, with a new bill, then you can you can bill for that Correct. outside consultation, right? Correct. It, either in your number of data that you're considering or the amount of data you're considering or in a separate consultation. But I, th- I think the point is, is that um, you've, you've managed uncertainty. Yeah. 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 And again, going back to it's okay to communicate complexity. It's okay to do that. Um, you gotta, I, I, you look back at just like the art. I said that I would use that word earlier. There's an art form and a science. There's an art form to doctoring. And that is just being comfortable with that. You got to learn to be comfortable with that. And I think the way to do that is just to understand big picture wise, like there's a lot of, of uncertainty. Like there's a lot of things that we are totally uncertain about and nothing is really that, um, perfectly well-designed in terms of treatments. Um, yes, some things kind of help, some things kind of don't. And when you kind of get to that point, I guess, in your career or in that point of understanding the evidence enough that there's just a lot of uncertainty anyhow, it actually gives you confidence like, okay, then it's really just down to, it's under my control to mm. just communicate that really mm-hmm. well uh, and paint that picture really well with patients mm-hmm. to, to realize like, you know, this isn't a perfect solution. There's no silver bullet or very few, I should say, very few in medicine whatsoever. I think one of the things that before we wrap up, but I think one of the things that always helps me clarify uh, my thinking is, especially in uncertain situations, is to try to step back and say, what's the stuff I really have to worry about? Hmm. You know, what's what's the threat to vision? What's the threat to life in this specific case? Especially, you know, we had a patient that came in uh, and, and it wound up being just a, a really big subconjunctival hemorrhage in mm. a patient who has had lot. She's on 23 different medications, a couple different anticoagulants. But the the notes in the in the triaging when the patient called was she's got a bloody nose, bloody tears, and bloody huh. eye. Huh. Right. So immediately, uh, Dr. Lindsay and I were kind of talking th- talking it through. Well, okay. So you're starting to think. Well, what could this like? What could cause all three of those? What are the things we really need to wor- worry about? And what are the things that, um, like, if it just winds up being a subconjunctival hemorrhage, fine. But, like, what's the, what, what's the really, and you can do that on a number of things. You know, a patient comes in with this symptom or this finding. Okay, I'm not sure exactly what this is, but I will feel much more comfortable if I can understand what's the really bad stuff I've got to worry about. Correct. And then I can figure out if I'm really worried about it or if even if I'm not, how do I eliminate that from the thing I've got to, I've got to be, uh, I've got to lose sleep over in terms of uncertainty. Yeah, that's, yeah, so well said. Yeah, just understanding what's the worst case scenario in this, in this situation. Yeah. You know, um, it's, and it's just checking those things off the list. My top thing that I'm really, really worried about, I got to look for that first. And if it's not that, then I'm going to just check down the list. And then it's getting to the point of realizing, okay, whatever the worst case scenario is here, am I willing to sit on that and embrace that? (laughs) Right. Am I I going to own it? Am I going to own that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so what are you willing to own? And I, and gosh, you know, we could talk for hours on this because we usually do when we're running, but, um, as ODs, man, we got to own so much more. Oh yeah. 
you know, we, we, uh, we're just in such a position where, and that's why I'm passionate about uh, decision-making, clinical decision-making and understanding uncertainty, both just in our practices and in light of what's going on uh, in the pandemic is um, we're, we have such an opportunity to, because we're with people every single day, we're mm -hmm. with our patients every single day to, to like own this to be the best at communicating this, to be the best at understanding the evidence, uh, because there have been some major failures, like we've alluded to before, mm -hmm. in, um, in how this has been communicated to the public. And so if we can and, uh, just do, do better and continue to, to improve on that in our own, with our own selves and our own practices, talking to our own patients, uh, that just puts us in a better position to uh, to earn their trust. And, you know, it all comes, the thing I was thinking about before is like, talk about practice management. Oh yeah. This is a practice builder. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if you just want to look at like dollars and cents at the end of the day, this is, this is going to establish you. And this is not why we're doing it. Um, it's a byproduct, uh, but it really does grow your practice yeah. and, uh, it grows your reputation. Uh, people respect you. It helps the profession tremendously and just puts us in a position to, to thrive no matter what competition we have online or whatever, because we're maintaining that position as the experts, as the go-to for anything I related, you know, from here on out. Yeah. Amen. <laughs>